Kia ora, uh, and welcome to this month's Mimia podcast discussion uh, with New Zealanders doing amazing work shaping the future. Uh, my name is Ben Reid. Um, I write the uh, twice weekly Mimia newsletter covering emerging tech, new ideas, and thinking about the future. Uh, you can subscribe for free at uh, hbsmimia.substack.com. Uh, this week, I'm delighted to welcome Matt Boyd, uh, Director of New Zealand-based Adapt Research and a regular correspondent of mine uh, pulling together the Mimia newsletters. Uh, Matt is originally medically trained, uh, but completed his PhD in philosophy, and he's since built a career as an independent researcher in the academic, public and private sectors. Uh, and for the last five years, Matt's research is attempting to understand and help reduce the largest threats to humanity. So looking at global catastrophic and existential risks. Uh, actually, Matt and I have worked together on a few AI research projects ourselves, um, uh, notably the AI Forum series of uh, reports on national AI policy and AI and health back in uh, 2019. Um, he's a regular commenter, commenter on the Meme newsletter, and I really value his insights on some of the biggest questions facing humanity today. So, Bat, great to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Ben. It's great to be here, and I, I must say, I um, I really appreciate your work. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm just uh, I'm on Wednesday. I'm over hump week today because it's Wednesday, and the newsletter's <laughs> gone out this morning, um, which is brilliant. Okay, look, well, look, let's just. Uh, yeah, we can have a pretty open and uh, you know flowing conversation here because I think there's there's plenty of areas we can delve into, and uh, you know I think before we know it, the time will be up. Um, but you know maybe just let's just start with your current work that you're focusing on, so catastrophic risks and you know existential risk for humanity as a whole. So you know how does a researcher? I know you've got a background in sort of health and uh, medicine. You know how have you gravitated towards this as your chosen field of research? Yeah, so as you say, originally I, I did study medicine, and um, I guess I was always a bit more interested in the in the the bigger questions, if if you like. And uh, to to a degree, to the degree that I, I I after reading a book by Richard Dawkins on um, the philosophy of biology, uh, I decided to go and do a uh, a, a master's and PhD in philosophy, um, right. and and then uh, you know. As, during that process, I, I started getting very interested in evolution and, and human uh, social and cultural evolution over, over long periods of time. So following the, the PhD, I got a job as a research fellow, um, and it was, it was in uh, the Auckland University School of Medicine, um, mm -hmm. obviously on the strength of, of my medical training rather than necessarily my philosophy training. Um, but you know the, the project there was was quite interesting. So we were trying to improve the safety of um, teamwork in, in that critical care setting, and that was trying to reduce harm to sort of one person at a time, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, and subsequent to that role, I, I did some more work uh, in in sort of what you might consider more public health uh, area, in um, things like uh, bowel cancer screening or, or some work um, for the National Health Committee, and and I guess this is looking at you know helping to reduce harm to to populations, you know, like the New Zealand population. And I, I sort of started considering, well, you know, how much harm is it possible to reduce, you know, and, and what's, the, what's the scale of, you know, how, how big does the problem get? And I, I guess that naturally led me to um, uh, collaborating on some work about pandemics, which is obviously right. potential harm to a global population. And then, you know, conceptually thinking beyond that, you're thinking, well, there's a whole lot of future generations as well. It's not just the people alive today. And there's potential harm uh, to, to future generations as well. And so, you know, basically the, the greatest triggers of, of, of the greatest harms are, are these um, uh, things which we might call existential risks. 
um, which is the uh, an, an event or some process that basically ends humanity, um, in, in which case it would harm not just everybody alive now, but would also, um, you know, prevent the possibility of, uh, you know, of, um, of future well-being uh, and future generations existing. So, I mean, you know, maybe we'll just jump straight into those existential risks right now. So what are the top 10 or top five existential risks facing humanity in 2022? Because there's a lot going on right now. Yeah, right? That, that, that's right. Look, there, there's, you know, there's, there's a set of risks that are considered to be uh, potentially existential. And, and I guess when, you, when you're talking about, you know, which are the greatest, um, I, I guess there's, there's considerations of the, the probability of, of these risks occurring and, and then, you know, the, the, the magnitude of the impact or the likelihood that they might actually uh, wipe out everyone. And, you know, and, and these risks will they'll have some sort of origin and, and they might scale up around the, around the world and then eventually they, they could potentially f- finish everyone off. So if you look, if you look just at the probability that, um, that, these, that these things occur, probably the, the, most, the most likely ones this, this century, anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of cite from Toby Ord's work in the book, mm. The Precipice, which I'm not saying I necessarily agree with all his probabilities here, but it's a good guide. It's a, it's a widely read book. And, and he thinks that this century or in the next hundred years, the, the risk that uh, unaligned artificial intelligence uh, you know, run amok in some in some way might might end humanity is, is potentially as high as ten percent, but it's obviously not ten percent in the next year. We're just we're just not there yet. So, if we're looking in the next year, the the highest probability existential threats are probably things like um, uh, an extreme pandemic, um, yeah. potentially one that's been um, bioengineered for for maximum impact, or some combination of pandemics, a multi pandemic. Yep. Um, then uh, another risk would be nuclear war, uh, which is you know which is widely considered to to potentially or have the potential to to uh, cause a nuclear winter. And I know you had uh, Lyndon Burford. On yeah, the, no, on... last I choose some cheery uh, topics for these podcasts, <laughs> right? I uh, know it's a really good conversation with Lyndon, um, and you know I think the timing of that was amazing because we did that just towards the end of last year, and and then you look at what's happening with Russia and Ukraine right now. And very much, you know, a lot of what he was talking about is just playing out now in terms of this, this escalation and, you know, the, the, these attempts to sort of contain it within a conventional war within Ukraine's borders, but uh, could just go any which way still, right? Absolutely. And, and then just to sort of, I guess, complete the list of the, of the three or four uh, top risks, uh, a, a super volcanic eruption is, is definitely uh, a possibility and, and probably has very similar impacts to a nuclear war uh, with the, the impact on climate. Um, and and, and, and then, just, just run, run through, so what would happen? So yeah. and I remember you know, speaking to Lyndon, and I think you've mentioned this as well, that a small regional nuclear conflict between, say, India and Pakistan would basically drive a nuclear winter around the world. Well, what, so, so what, you know, is it radiation yeah, so, poisoning or is climate impact or what? Yeah. Yeah. So that so that's that's the sort of the thinking, and, and, and all this is highly uncertain because obviously it's very difficult to, to conduct experiments and, and whatnot uh, in, in this area. So it's largely based on modeling work. Um, but uh, integrated modeling of, of uh, climate and ocean um, and, and even crop modeling uh, ha- has shown that. Yeah, um, it depends very much on how many weapons are detonated and and where what the target is, whether it's um, cities uh, which would have a lot of combustible material, or whether it's you know military targets in, in more remote areas. Um, but but 
potentially um, all the soot from this, um, uh, the fires um, would, would rise into the stratosphere. Um, again, that's also controversial, just the dynamics of firestorms and, and so forth. But, um, but the models suggest that the soot would rise into the stratosphere and spread around the world, um, thereby uh, basically cooling the planet. Yeah, um, blocking, and out also the sun. Yeah. blocking out the sun yeah, and, and uh, destroying um, ozone. Uh, and uh, reducing precipitation and, and you know all sorts of climate and, and ecological effects, but the the, the you know the, the net outcome of that is that the uh, yield from global agriculture would drop uh, substantially, uh, e even as you alluded to in a in a you know quote small nuclear war perhaps between India and Pakistan or, or something like that you might see a 1.8 degree uh, mean global temperature drop. Um, you know, and obviously the opposite direction to what we're talking about. Uh, yeah, with, with climate, climate change, change right? Yeah. yeah. So, um, the, yeah, and the thinking is that in New Zealand, uh, we could see, you know, in, in the worst case scenario, potentially up to 58% reduction in, in, in crop yield. It, it, here in Aotearoa? Yeah, and yeah. It compare, compare that to perhaps continental Europe, where, where the worst of the, you know, the frost and ice and, and whatnot might strike in. Places like uh, you know Ukraine and China and and uh, the United States, where there's obviously a lot of grains grown, could see um, you know ninety to one hundred percent reduction in, in crop yield. I mean, I was going to ask you this question at the end, but we, we, we'll go back into the rest. But you know, how do you study this stuff and then maintain a positive mindset? <laughs> yeah, look, that that's a good question. I, I guess I guess I'm inherently optimistic, and you know, if you look at at the trajectory of, of, uh, of human, you know, humanity over the last couple of hundred years, it, it we've made all sorts of uh, wonderful gains in things like life expectancy, infant mortality, you know, um, rights and, uh, and and whatnot. And um, you know, pe people like Stephen Pinker have tracked this in, in some of their work. And look, if things go well, there's there's no reason to think that that sort of trajectory wouldn't continue uh, into the future. And so, I guess the the optimist in me says, "Well, let's let's make sure that things go well then, and and the future can be even even better." Yeah, I mean, I look at those those stats as well. That optimistic view on you know we've never had it so lucky, um, never had you know life so good. But it feels that it doesn't really account for a lot of the externalities. I mean, when you look at you know basically the oceans are dying off, we've got you know climate change, which will you know lead to quite likely you know ecological collapse um, in in you know, all around the world. And so, you know, it, it feels those are pretty major support systems. And so it may be that we've been increasing life expectancy and infant mortality and so on, but it, but in a unbalanced, you know, way, we're trying to develop political systems and accounting systems to, you know, we maybe talk about well-being measures and, and, you know, measuring climate change, measuring carbon emissions. How do we stop ecological collapse yeah so uh, you know you, you you raise a good point and 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 the uh you know if you, if you look at those lists of the the existential risks they they definitely include you know the ecological impacts of 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 climate change and um and and biodiversity degradation and and potentially unknown uh, impacts on on the environment that you know that that we're not particularly uh aware of yet and and so i guess i include within that set of risks, which um, if we can solve them all, then the future would be, you know, could could be really good. I, I would include those these problems, and so so some of the issues that we need to, or some of the risks, you know, we need to prevent are these risks of uh, of, of ecological collapse. Um, so, 
you know, I, I think that's along with, you know, preventing nuclear war and along with um, preventing the next pandemic, um, you know, pre preventing those cascading um, uh, effects through our ecosystems. Cas is, is cascading, yeah, cascading is definitely, you, you feel that, 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 you know, there's potentially a build-up of all of these things that are going to, you know, everyone talks about the meta crisis now. It's been, you know, my my rabbit hole of choice in the last couple of months is is you know reading up around that. And you've, you know, there's crises all over the place, all culminating at once. Um, mm. And and so yeah, very interesting time to be alive. But <laughs> and 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 potentially, you know, we might see impact from these things quite suddenly because uh, if if you look to ecological resilience theory, you know, a, a resilient system in ecological terms is really one that can with, withstand shock um, and, and, and continue to function. But then you, you know, you reach these tipping points where, where a system might suddenly and, and potentially irreversibly flip into a, a, a new state. We see this with algal blooms and, and, and things like this, but the, you know, the, the planetary system, climate systems and so forth, um, basically, you know, op operate on the same principles. You know, could the ecology of the world adjust yeah, look, I, I that that's probably not not my area of, of expertise, but but I, I think the potential is there. I mean, if you look at the grandest uh, uh, you know time spans, I guess across history, we, we, we've clearly seen that um, uh, you know uh, species have ranged very far north. You know, when when uh, times were warmer, and then have been sort of compressed into more equatorial regions when when ice ages struck and so forth. And so there's clearly an, an adaptive capacity there. For, for both, uh, you know, ecological systems and and human systems, I, I guess the it hinges on the the pace of the change, you know, and and if the if the pace of the degradation is faster than than the pace of, you know, shifting key systems and adaptation and so forth, um, then you know then that mismatch could be could be could make, could cause trouble. Yeah, and if you um, go back in the sort of uh, fossil record. Um, and I think I wrote about it once, and I can't remember it's the Eocene period, I think, but there was a, basically an e, uh, a massive temperature spike um, of around two or three degrees Celsius um, with increased, as I understand, carbon dioxide. I'll, I'll put this in the podcast notes. Um, and then, you know, a, a, a large extinction event um, that, that followed that straight away. And so, you know, it's a, it's a real anomaly in the, um, mm. in the fossil record, I think. And so there are some scientists who say that, you know, what's happening right now with the Anthropocene changes is very indicative of what, you know, happened back then. And it's, it's certainly the case that, um, you know, uh, the majority, it seems, of the historical mass extinctions, you know, were related to, to these kinds of events, probably driven by vol volcanism um, and, and in, in one case, probably um, tipped over the edge by uh, uh, the asteroid impact of, of Chicxulub. Yeah. Um, you know, which we can add to that list of, of existential mm. risks, um, uh, asteroid impact, uh, um, the, the return period, if you like, of, um, of you know, the sort of world killing asteroids is, is very long, you know, so in the order of millions of years. So, you know, I, I wouldn't say that we could, we should just ignore the problem, um, because I guess if you, you know, at some point you have to do something or eventually it's, it's going to get you, but, but, you know, we probably shouldn't be putting, you know, all our resources uh, into, into, you know, asteroid deflection or, or whatever at the moment, just uh, have some people working on it. Yeah, and you, you've got Elon Musk and his working on interplanetary species, which probably is going to happen sooner in the future than a lot of people think. Um, but, you know, look, I, I like to see, uh, I mean, I like to look at the, this sort of exploration as, um, you know, a bit analogous to, 
you know, when you think of, um, uh, you know, Viking populations back in the day when they were first sort of setting sail for, you know, for, for Greenland or, or whatever. And um, yeah, it was, you know, rudimentary and it was small and, and so forth. But, you know, bit by bit, it, it, it led to, um, you know, fascinating exploration around the world. And, and you know, these Mars missions, um, I, you know, a, a, as, a, as another arrow in the quiver of, of protection against existential, existential risk, I think, um, you know, they're, they're useful in that regard. Um, maybe not useful in the immediate future, but at, at some point, if, if humanity wants to survive, we will have to move elsewhere because eventually the sun will, you know, engulf the earth basically and boil the oceans off. So. <laughs> Yeah, a few, few hundred uh, million years to go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, 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 um, I'm still, you know, working my way through Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, Mars trilogy. So, you know, Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars, uh, which I don't know if you've uh, read that, but it's, it's sort of, you know, just this historical account. You know, it's quite a gripping, you know, piece of fiction, but it's this historical account, very detailed on, you know, the technology and the progression of building a civil, you know, moving pe people there first and then, building a civilization over time and the politics around that and absolutely uh, fascinating set of books to read. Talk me through, because you've basically been writing some papers recently on risks, but also, you know, ways that, uh, you know, society and, and government in particular can, you know, work to respond and to react to these. So just talk me through some of that thinking that you've been doing and maybe bring it into a New Zealand out of our context. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, we've, when I say we, it's often I, I collaborate with the, the public health physician, uh, Nick Wilson, um, and, and a few others here and there as well. But um, uh, he's probably my main, my most common co-author. Um, and and over, yeah, over the last five years or so, we have written a, a, a set of papers looking at two broad areas, I guess. One is um, specific risks um, and, and what might be done specifically for those risks. And then another sort of set of papers looking at um, risk more generally as a, as a suite and what might be done um, you know, in, in the analysis and mitigation of risk as a category rather than particular risks. And so I guess it began with, um, with thinking around, uh, around pandemics um, and, and not even necessarily pandemics as existential risks because you know, let's face it, most pandemics are, are not existential risks. And, um, you know, I mean, COVID uh, obviously has, has been killing, you know, well under 1% of the population. So it's, um, it's hardly going to finish us off. Um, but, you know, but uh, it, it, worse pandemics are, are conceivable. And, you know, there are diseases out there that kill, you know, 50 or 90% of, of people infected. And if you're killing off 90% of the population, then the risk of just general societal collapse and, and conflict and, um, and being finished off by, by other processes, you know, is, is, is very you know, much higher. So we, we were thinking, um, you know, what, what might be some of the, the ways to uh, ensure that, you know, very severe pandemics don't impact, um, you know, in, in particular New Zealand, but, uh, but, but island nations generally. And, and you know, the obvious uh, intervention, and this, this was back in about 2017, is to, you know, is to close the border um, and try and keep it out uh, before it even arrives. Um, and so we, we did a couple of preliminary papers, it was very much just exploratory work looking at the, the cost effectiveness of, of this sort of strategy. And, you know, looking back after COVID, it was probably a bit, a bit naive, you know, we, we sort of factored in the, the, the tourist economy and we, we factored in, you know, the, the costs burden on the health system of, of if the pandemic did arrive, you know, as sort of the counterfactual. And, um, you know, crunched a few, a few numbers and, and basically, 
you know, unsurprisingly, there's a level at which the pandemic severity is such that it's actually cheaper to keep it out rather than, yeah. um, you know, and suck up the losses. Yeah, and we've and we've witnessed that, you know, with with COVID itself, right? Because you know, even though the borders have been, you know, shut for two years, we, we've actually gone quite well um, through all this. If you you know ignore sort of house price uh, distortions and inflation, yeah, you can quite imagine that um, you know a hermit kingdom strategy would actually work, you know, very effectively, even even for something that's um, you know just at one percent. Yeah, and look, I, I think that's that's broadly right, and and but I, I guess I'd add a few things to that um, that are that are lessons perhaps for, for the future. One is that we, we went to the Ministry of Health actually in, in 2017 with this preliminary work and and said, you know, we've done a few back of the envelope type things. You know, do you want to fund some deeper research on this issue? And the, their response was basically, uh, border closure will never be a policy option. Um, you know, your work's mm. interesting, but but not practically relevant. So I think the lesson there is, mm. um, you know, that there's potentially Groupthink floating around. You know, there's there's historical bias. There's um, lack of imagination. You know, these are some of the cognitive barriers yeah. to, to thinking about these things. And another another learning, I think, is that you know we 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 closed the border, uh, but obviously we had the MIQ system and uh, you know managed quarantine and, and so forth. And we had many incursions of COVID into New Zealand um, during that period. And and some we were lucky to stamp out, and and you know eventually we, mm. we were unable to. And I think the lesson there is, well, if the pandemic was very much worse, you know, killing 10% or 25% of, of people that infects, you know, perhaps um, it's a mistake to actually allow anyone into the country uh, for a period of time, you know, just in case it comes in. Yeah. Or um, any ship, any ships. Or any ship, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And look, that, there's obviously major, you know, ethical considerations around that and probably should be, you know, thought about a lot more deeply and, and have a public uh, discussion around it. Um, but, but, you know, when, when does the right of someone to return to their home country um, trump, you know, the potential deaths of 25% of the population and, mm. uh, and, and that sort of thing. So I, so I think there's more, more lessons there um, and some food for thought for the future. And it is, I mean, it would be a fascinating, really quite short piece of work really to build a model up, which is like, well, COVID's our baseline, right? Um, and it was, you know, this infectious and this fatal, and then play with those two parameters. Um, and you know, right up to the twenty-five percent, fifty percent, you know, engineered virus. Say, um, and then you know, what? Uh, what is the strategy? How do you actually? And how do you not just you keep, uh, you know, say to boats that they're not allowed to come, but stop them from coming because you're going to get refugees trying to make it here from all over the world, right? Yeah, I, I look. That's basically the work that we suggested needs to be done. You know, I, I completely agree with you. But another another lesson that that I guess came out of of this is um, so then we, we wrote a couple more papers thinking, well, well, what if it was really really severe? Maybe it was a hundred percent, you know, fatal, and 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 humanity was was just basically going to die out unless uh, unless some part of it was partitioned until the the, the threat the pandemic had passed. So the next couple of papers we wrote were looking at, well, where in the world are the most um, well-placed, you know, uh, populations for, for that to, to take place? And, you know, unsurprisingly, we felt that they were islands um, because obviously you've got a problem with porous land borders, you know, if, if, uh, if you're anywhere else. And, um, and, and these populations need to be somewhat self-sufficient um, to, 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 to have that shutdown uh, be effective. And, and you know, and, and we, we came up with an index that basically 
measured things like the location, the, the, the sort of population and um, the resources that are available and the social cohesion and, and, and so forth there. So we, we concluded that, you know, on that basis, it's, it seems like um, Australia, New Zealand and Iceland were, were you know, the most well-placed um, to, to, you know, sort of survive independently through this sort of period. Um, a, a lot of other islands are, you know, heavily dependent on energy imports or they don't, they're not food self-sufficient. Um, or they don't have uh, a, a, you know, a good public health system to try and you know, stamp out any outbreaks that do happen to arrive, mm. that, that sort of thing. Um, but I think, again, we were probably a little bit naive with, with those. I, th I think the, the theory is, is, is right, but, um, but it's actually harder to be self-sufficient than, than it appears. And, and that, I think it's because of this heavy dependence on, on trade um, for things like you know, refined fuel and, uh, and machinery components and expertise and, and so forth. So, I think I think there's a lot more to be ironed out uh, before before we'd want to try and be completely self-sufficient. So the question the question that you know came into my mind there is, in terms of the you know um, being naive, is the tacit assumption that the international rules-based order would just continue through this, and so you know all of the countries where you do have a sort of like seventy-five percent uh, you know fatality um, pandemic raging through there are going to maintain their government integrity and and then that they're going to the, the the rules around sort of national national borders i mean we're seeing it happen in you know relative peacetime with, with russia and ukraine right um and so yeah i i want i i've read um you know there's a fair bit of science fiction that goes into this um neil stevenson's seven eves if you've read that um I, I have, the sort yeah. of yeah where the moon you know, explodes and, and they realize it's all like uh, only a few no, a few years now to get every human off the planet or, um, and then, they, you know, the, the, then there's sort of all of world government that um, pops up, you know, as a sort of uh, uh, autocratic uh, dictatorship um, uh, to, to uh, you know, to create a lottery of who gets off the planet and who doesn't. Um, and I wonder, you know, what, do you, do you think that anybody's thinking about you know that extreme scenario when you know the the, the nation state based rules based order that you know Aotearoa always supports you know just just dissolves just goes away? I I, I guess the first thing I'd say to that is um, is is almost the, the opposite point that there are there are there are researchers out there who are, who are trying to think you know how how could we feed everybody um, in a nuclear winter scenario, volcanic winter scenario, um, you know, is it possible to, to grow alternative food sources that don't depend on, on sunlight? So these might be um, things like, uh, you know, seaweed that can grow in very low sunlight or, or manufactured single cell proteins, these sorts of things. But, um, uh, you know, my, my feeling is, is that the, the degree of coordination and, and trade in, in labor and, and parts and, and so forth and transporting food to where it's needed and all these sorts of things is, is just so vast and complex that I, I, I really don't have faith that it would be possible in these sorts of scenarios, as you say, you know, where, where global order breaks down and, and, and countries are hoarding food and, and physically unable to trade and, and so forth. So I think there's a lot of plausible scenarios where that whole system does, does really collapse. And, um, you know, and, and, and once you get to that point, you know, the risk of, of, society you know technology digital technological society falling apart everywhere and it starts to get higher and higher and if if the threat does pass and then civilization is to be rebuilt um 
it would be a lot easier for that to happen if there if there had been some sort of protected um, what you might call persisting nodes of complexity that had that had survived this uh, with institutions intact with industrial society intact and so um, you know that that's a, a, a couple of papers working on at the moment kind of address this issue where we're looking at the nuclear winter scenario or volcanic winter scenario and how might somewhere like New Zealand um, or Australia or Iceland uh, um, you know what, what what resilience measures might they invest in ahead of time um, that mm. would help them be able to help kind of catalyze this reboot and, and I mean I could just imagine so when you're sort of having meetings in Wellington um, you know discussing <laughs> these, these these eventualities these scenarios and you know this might be a good idea to invest in I think and I think you know one of the, your reports basically called for a commissioner um, a future, Commissioner, um, talk so talk me through that, and then talk me through you know how those conversations go. Yeah, so look, I I, I guess uh, you know we we feel that um, there's quite a lot of interventions that that you might do ahead of time that, that actually also have co benefits, you know, across other risks or across present day risks or or just for business as usual, and and yet um, the the process for assessing risks and deciding on interventions in in New Zealand is you know, in, in my view, uh, has a lot of shortcomings, and and this is this is because uh, it's um, it, there's a national risk assessment which which you know assesses a range of risks and then produces a, a national risk register where these risks are kind of um, uh, you know listed adjacent to one another um, you know according to their their probability and their um, you know the magnitude of their impact and so forth. Um, but but firstly, there, it's not clear that that process of assessment is linked to a process of um, you know capabilities enhancement or, or you know intervention or, or response in some way. Uh, partly because the the whole thing is confidential, and so you know the the average person can't um, access this information. Um, and uh, you know, and, and partly because it, it doesn't if it, if it's anything like the ones which which do have a public facing. Uh, version like the UK, there's a public-facing national risk register. It, they they seem to to leave out most of the risk. To be quite honest, there's you know there's there's no mention of um, nuclear winter or or you know global global food shortage or um, you know uh, engineered pandemic and, and 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 these sorts of things. And partly that might be a result of a a national inward-looking focus of of some of these uh, processes, and which I think is a is, is a flaw in itself. And and these national risk assessments probably need to be linked in some way uh, uh, globally. Um, but uh, but also, you know, there's there's certain features that are that a good assessment should take, and and you know, it probably should look over an appropriate time period. But a lot of these only look over maybe two or five years. You know, it should be it should be. Um, you know, some sort of apolitical process, and, and at the moment it's sort of hosted in, in DPMC, which which is you know officially sort of a uh, you know they're bureaucrats, it's an apolitical institution, but you know I, I think there's obviously some degree of you know yes minister. Um, uh, and like uh, you say, it's on it's it's sort of driven by this three year electoral cycle, um, which has got a lot of positive things to say about it, but um, that ability to do long term planning on a different. Yeah, you know, uh, cadence just just isn't there. Yeah. So, so the the Public Services Act uh, twenty twenty, I think it was, has, has now mandated these long term insights briefings mm. that each uh, each CEO has to has to produce in, in the public sector. But but we'd like to see you know a more and um, a sort of an independent apolitical you know aggregating 
you know, looking across ministries, um, uh, you know, um, agile, um, adaptive, you know, kind of office, which we've proposed a, um, a parliamentary commissioner for extreme risks, so, you know, like the, the privacy commissioner and the children's commissioner and so forth. And, and they would have responsibilities to, you know, for example, future generations and responsibilities to look across the long term in the interests of, of the country. And, and, you know, they'd be supported by a, a well-resourced office that could conduct these kinds of analyses and, and help coordinate across, across the public sector and, and, and table their findings and recommendations and so forth to parliament rather than to, to government so that it's all, you know, more in the public domain. So, you know, so, something like that, um, may well be a, a useful coordination mechanism. And I, I know the former chief science advisor, uh, Peter Gluckman, he, he's proposed a similar idea, but, but he proposed um, that, it, that it would reside in the, the office of the Auditor General, um, which I'm not sure that's quite the right place because they're probably a bit hamstrung by, um, you know, um, by, by history and, and, you know, potentially groupthink and, and there may be a need to, um, you know, change some minds in, in those sorts of areas rather than create something fresh and, and built for purpose rather than ad adapted for purpose, so to speak. Hmm. What, what we've found, uh, you know, through, through some of our research is that um, the, the national risk assessments of, of various countries, you know, they, they have a process and they produce often this two-dimensional communication tool, the, the risk matrix, which has probability hmm. along one axis and, and consequences up the other. Yeah. Alien, alien, aliens arrive right down at the very yeah, end right of, down at yeah, yeah exactly. Um, you know, and 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 you know, I stub my toe is extremely extremely frequent, but of little impact. You know, um, and and so it's you know it's these risks that sort of cluster in that in that so-called upper right corner of of those uh, of those um, matrices that are, that are supposed to be the, the ones that are you know salient and, and worth doing something about. But the there's a whole suite of assumptions that are packed into that that risk yeah. matrix. There's an assumption about the time frame of interest. There's an assumption about you know any discount rate on future impacts. There's an assumption on what kind of scenario is is considered. Is it the worst case? Is it the most frequent case? You know, is it some plausible but challenging case? And so um, it, it's just a snapshot of one set of assumptions. And, and what what we'd like to see is is a, a two way public dialogue um, where people can perhaps explore the risk assessment and, and change the parameters of yeah. it. I'm interested in 50 years, not two years. I'm, yeah. I'm, I don't want to discount the future, you know, future lives and so forth and, and play around with it a bit. And, and that might help, um, you know, uh, experts and businesses and the general public sort of build a vocabulary around risk and, and, and engage with, with, with the government, um, you know, uh, and be able to give informed and, and considered feedback. No, absolutely. It feels like there's a data surface there you know some kind of model an interactive model where you can um something i've been playing with uh on a couple of my analyses recently where you can sort of plot scenarios against a number of axes and so you know sort of um you know asteroid landing you know end of humanity is is you know one scenario but you know a small meteor you know landing on you know a large you know 20 million city or something is another scenario and you can you could probably sort of navigate around the three-dimensional space um and uh you know, and, la and land on tangible scenarios to triangulate to. Um, I, I think there's a, something you talked about earlier, you mentioned a couple of times is um, the interest of future generations. And so, you know, it's something that I've been thinking of is how can you actually build a system in which, you know, the, the interests of people that aren't born yet, if something we do now affects them in a hundred years time, you know, that there's probably more, 
humans in the future than there, have, than there are in the past, right? So how do you weight your decision-making democratically in 2022? Yeah, look, I, I think that's one of the core problems actually, because uh, without, without future generations able to have a voice, then um, in many cases, the decisions that get made now are, are pretty much biased towards the interests of those uh, yeah. alive now. And so, you know, I think there's probably a sort of multi-pronged approach that you need that you need to take to this. Um, you know, the, the officers like that proposed commissioner of extreme risk that I suggested, you know, could have a, a legislative mandate, for example, to consider future generations. Um, and, and, I, and I think that would be a reasonable thing to do, because I think when you talk to most people, you know, and, and you have a, you know, a reasoned conversation with them, not just sort of a slogan fight. Um, they, they, you know, most people agree that, you know, there's something important about future generations, you know, even if it's just their grandchildren and, you know, mm. not, not any further in the future than that. And, but, but, you know, many people think that it, it really doesn't matter at what point in time yeah. someone exists, they're just as, they have just the same rights and, and should be, you know, just as safe as, as everyone else. And, and so, you know, we could, we could, build that into, into legislation somehow, you know, perhaps potentially like the Bill of Rights. Similar things could happen at the level of the UN. Um, you know, there, there could be, uh, you know, international rights of, of, of future generations. But I, but I think there's, there's also movements um, around the world, like, uh, like the effective altruism movement, you know, mm -hmm. for example, which, which take these sorts of questions quite seriously. And, and, and they're, they're growing movements. And I think a lot of the times when people make decisions that are very much present bias there. Yes, there'll be sometimes self-interest there, but sometimes it's just simply a, a lack of reflection on the issue. And, and, you know, and had they thought about future generations, which we're often not in the habit of thinking about in our day-to-day -day lives, then maybe decisions might've been made that were a little bit different. So effective altruism um, is, is basically a, a, a movement, I guess. It's also sort of a question. And the question is, you know, how, how to do good well uh, how to do how to do the, the most good with the with the resources available, um, and and they often base their reasoning around this um, this ITN framework, the the importance, tractability, and neglectedness framework, which is is sort of based in utilitarian reasoning and, and you know derives its uh, it, you know the, the the pedigree of that goes back to uh, the philosopher Peter Singer um, and mm. and and his his thinking, but um, basically you you think about you know how important some issue is. And, and packaged within that might be, you know, what effect is it going to have on future generations? Um, if it's going to have a big effect, negative effect on future generations, then it might be more important than something that's going to have a small effect on present generations. Um, and you think, you know, is this, is this issue tractable? Is there anything we can do about it? And, and if there is, then, then it's worth looking at. And is it neglected? Um, you know, for example, there's uh, tens of thousands of people probably around the world looking at climate change and working on climate change. But... Um, but there's, uh, you know, only a handful looking at um, the, the aftermath of nuclear war, for example. And, mm. and yet, if you multiply the probability and consequences of these two things, you know, they, they maybe they come out roughly similar. So there's, there's a bit of a mismatch of, of resources there. Um, so, you know, thinking like that, sort of a sort of rationalist approach, I guess, to, um, to, to risk minimization, um, you know, you know, might might help, but but effective altruism has also like traditionally it, it focused on issues like um, global poverty and uh, animal welfare and, and global health. So things that are obviously big issues, uh, and there's something tractable we can do, and they were often neglected and, and so forth. But it has drifted a bit into this long-termist uh, sort of thinking, which is that yeah. oh gosh, there's there's actually 
potentially trillions of future people. You know, we might be at the very start of humanity's traje trajectory. Well, so, well, we'll get into sort of transhumanism in a minute, right? Um, yep. Yeah. And, and, and so I guess they, they say, well, you know, if there's a very small probability that something might, um, you know, erase the potential of, of that future, then the expected value, probability times impact, could still be huge. And so this is where you start to get into some of the problems of this sort of thinking in that, um, you know, you may end up, rationality or, or you know may may tell you to put all your resources into this thing that has a tiny 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 probability of, of happening so there needs to be probably some limits uh to, to this thinking um and, and another limitation is is around what you might or what is called moral cluelessness which is where we we really don't know the the long-term impacts of our actions um mm. and you know uh this the sort of i, I guess the you know the the anecdote about uh, the the midwife who saves Adolf Hitler as a baby kind of thing and you know and, and thinks they've done this amazing thing but obviously you know the long-term consequences were, were very bad and so it can be also very hard to know what to do given given that sort of cluelessness about about our actions so I, I personally think you get much of the same mileage by focusing just on the risks in the near future um, and how do you and, define near yeah like um, let, let me put it another way even if all you look at is the next one year um, and only people alive now uh, and, and you look at the worst case scenarios, well, then things like pandemics and nuclear war still look like they justify a lot of attention. And then I think you still get the same effect on the long-term future, um, but you've sort of thought about it a, a, a different way. It's really fascinating, um, you know, that, that idea of accounting for future generations. Um, and, you know, I think one of the areas that fascinates me the most is this concept of human augmentation um, and the fact that we're on this technological transhuman journey um, that's that's accelerating, and so you know, the, the, there's there's potential speciation events you know going on around us. Where uh, I mean, I, I I talk about sort of uh, Homo capitalis, um, which is sort of like uh, humans augmented by capital, and they're all, you know they're superhuman. Uh, sort of Elon Musk has is has more actuation um, capability you know than than any. Uh, baseline human because he's augmented with capital and hence technology um and you know if you think about evolutionary history um and you go back to you know the hominids running around on the african plains um then you know they would have had no conception whatsoever that we would be here having this conversation you know on 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 video conferencing you know a few million years hence um and so for us to attempt to you know sort of model the well-being of future generations when they will be different species uh, entirely you know hybrid biological technological um you know seems seems to be another factor anyway that, that makes it a much more uncertain model i i think that that's basically right and i know um you know, there's there's a lot of thinking around. Maybe this is one of the justifications for discounting the, the value of, of future lives because we don't we don't know what their needs are going to be, what their technologies are going to be, and and so it's it's you know it's, it may be unclear what to do now mm -hmm. because because we don't understand what the problem will be in, in the future, and and potentially that underscores the importance of existential risks because uh, what one thing we can probably be certain of is that they prefer to exist than not exist. Um, and so if we can prevent humanity going extinct, that's at least one step in, in the right direction. That said, there's another class of existential risks, so um, which are known as, as S risks, um, 
uh, basically, which which revolve around uh, immense suffering. The sort of mm. situations where humanity gets locked into a, 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 a an unbreakable period of immense suffering, perhaps under some sort of totalitarian regime, um, and that may be worse than having gone extinct. So, um, you know, that, that's that's another one to add to the list. I think. Right. Gosh, and so you know, when you're um, you know working in this in this field every day um, and sort of running these models of you know, what's the worst that can happen um, and how likely is it? Uh, you know, so how do you apply this to your sort of day-to-day -day existence, if I could ask, you know, so are you, are you prepping right now? I mean, have you got sort of like a, a cabin in the woods with, with yeah. sort of uh, two years' worth of uh, food? So, so I, I guess, the, uh, so I, I'm, I'm not a, a prepper, so, so to speak, uh, but beyond, you know, beyond maybe preparations for things like the you know the af8 earthquake um since i'm, I'm based in reefton basically right, right on the fault so you know so I, i've got you know a month's food and, and those sorts of things so that if the roads are, are cut off like kind and, of I mean, and i live here in altatahi christchurch right and so my you know the, the one lesson that that uh, that that event told taught me um was i was expecting societal you know collapse and looting and everything and actually society just came together and everybody looked after each other, you know, in, 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 as a community. It's, um, it was, you know, really eye-opening how, uh, you know, those times of, of uh, stress and trouble actually do bring communities together to, and you know, it, to mutually assist each other, yeah. I, look, I, I, I think that's absolutely right. And, and when, we, when we started looking at island refuges as a, you know, as a, a, a hub to, to sustain, you know, complexity and, and um, you know, uh, well-functioning society. Um, you know, it, it was it, we drew upon the literature uh, around bunkers. You know, from from sort of goes back to the Cold War. You know, people there were nu nuclear bunkers and so forth. And, and there's been in the existential risk literature a lot of writing about things like submarine bunkers and yeah. you know Antarctic bunkers, the International Space Station, etc. But look, and, and you know, and these you know so-called billionaire bolt holes. You know, uh, allegedly down in Wanaka and, and whatnot. Um, but but if that's if that's where the surviving humanity is going to be, you know, and crawling out of those bunkers into, you know, into a, a devastated world with, um, with, you know, with limited expertise and, and a few pieces of technology that you've preserved in your bunker and whatnot, I, I think is going to be a much, much harder and, and possibly less rewarding uh, situation than, you know, than if we ahead of time plan for how to preserve whole communities um, where people can, as you say, all pitch in together and everyone has diverse skills and we preserve knowledge and, and uh, you know, and, and all that. So, mm. so I, I think island bunkers, for lack of a better word, island refuges, you know, have, have a lot of merit over, over standard bunkers, you know. And in the absence of, you know, government taking that much of an interest, you know, because it's not really going to be a vote winner, you know, at the next election, you know, are there... Um, you know, independent self, you know, organisations out there that are starting to group together and, and plan around the, these type of eventualities. Yeah, so there are. Look, there's, there's, you know, going back to the sort of effective altruism um, uh, philosophy that, that I mentioned before. Um, there's been a lot of philanthropic funding that has that has been poured into that to that area um, to to fund projects. You know, exactly of, of the kind that um, you know that, that we're talking about here. Whether it be thinking about bunkers or whether it be thinking about preventing the you know an engineered pandemic or or AI safety issues um, or you know or how to rebuild society after a collapse. And you know, and, and the funding um, in, into that has grown and grown over the last few years. There's people like um, 
Sam Bankman-Fried with his with his new FTX Future Fund um, is, is funding this sort of research. Open Philanthropy uh, does a lot of this work and the Effective Altruism Long-Term Future Fund and so forth. So, so there's a, a, quite a lot of resource now now coming into this, you know, from, from the private sector um, and, and actually mostly from individuals, to, to be honest. But it's still, you know, a drop in the ocean when you compare it to the likes of the, the UK's Overseas Development Assistance Fund you know, which is $20 billion or, or you know, or something else. And so, so um, you know, if governments could take a different perspective, um, you know, and, uh, you know, they definitely have the resources to shift around um, to do more good than they currently do, you know, on the basis of the sorts of calculations that I've just been uh, talking about before. Um, one of the risks that, you know, we haven't really talked about it, you did mention it earlier, um, is unaligned AI. Um, and, you know, I think this is one that, you know, you and I have had a few conversations on uh, in the past. You know, what, what is your thinking, you know, most up-to-date thinking on that problem and, you know, maybe some of the tactics that, and, and I just say this um, in light of just recent developments that I've been following with, you know, autonomous drone swarms um, that are, you know, very close to being, used in military contexts if they're not already being used or um, right now. And, and so how the, um, the killer robot scenario is, uh, is pretty much you know, up, upon us. Um, and you know, any efforts, you know, I know that the New Zealand government has, uh, has called for moratoria um, and is you know, helping to um, you know, stop the spread of these weapons, but um, you know, they're, they're so accessible on an open source basis to non non state actors and hostile actors, that I think that would be you know swimming upstream against quite a strong current. So you know what other are you sanguine about it? Do you think there's a sort of evolution Darwinian evolution that's happening there? So if 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 I, you know a hostile AI evolves, then a benign AI will you know co evolve alongside it, and the two will sort of maintain equilibrium. Or do you uh, feel that there's a much larger risk there of one outweighing the other yeah i i think assuming that there'll be some sort of equilibrium i think it's the wrong way way to go i think that in you know if, if you want to look at it through the lens of evolutionary dynamics um you know there's there's many examples in in evolution where, where there's been that sort of arms race but then you know some tipping point is reached and one eliminates the other um mm. and you know and that that could cert could certainly happen um, and, and it may be that it's the humans that eliminate the AI, you know, through the use of, you know, high altitude nuclear weapons and electromagnetic pulses or, or something, you know, maybe we, we have to resort to that one day. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, look, I, I think it's, a, it's clearly a growing concern um, that the, the AI threat generally, or autonomous weapons um, specifically, um, but I, I guess I see autonomous weapons um, and, and various other AI threats as you know, more instances of these risks as we were listing them before. And under, underlying all that, underlying our response across all those risks, um, whether, whether it be pandemics or nuclear war or autonomous drone swarms, is this, um, you know, is, is the information that we, that we have to hand and, and the beliefs that we have. And I think one of the main AI risks still, in my opinion, is the, is the threat to, um, you know, to, of information pollution and, and misinformation and <laughs> persuasion and, and so forth, particularly as we see, uh, you know, the improvements in the technology with, with GPT-3 and... Yeah. and so, well, GPT-4 so, is out in a matter of months. About e exactly. 
and and the um, you know some of the general purpose AIs that uh, uh, DeepMind is now um, you know has, has is now tinkering with, um, and so uh, you know and coupled with the with the dynamics that we see where you know social media is is creating these um, you know siloed um, cliques of you know yeah. of, of extremist yeah. individuals and so forth yeah. with the parliamentary um, you know occupation protests um, it was quite phenomenal just seeing how clearly. Um, captured those audiences became and i saw some research coming out today that you know it was really only at 12 i think 10 or 12 social media accounts that uh, basically were propagated yeah. uh, they, they were the source of all of the uh, key disinformation that and, drove it and so it, it's you know quite frankly it's scary how quickly those um though because a lot of those beliefs and and themes and, and so forth are, are relatively new you know but i don't know how long the likes of QAnon has been around it's you know it's probably five or six years or, or, or something of, of that nature and and then all the pandemic uh, misinformation is obviously you know uh, is it more. is it not is it not just the latest instance of so, uh, religion uh well it, it probably leverages many of the same psychological uh uh devices and and i i guess the way i like to look at it is you know when i was studying cultural evolution as in, as in human information transfer over generations and, and long periods of time. Um, there, were th there were three, basically three drivers of, of what made information spread. Um, th these, these are the, the source of the information. If it's, a, if it's a more prestigious source, it's more likely to be taken up and, and believed. Um, and I guess this relates to things like these, um, these hub uh you know twitter accounts and stuff that you know that have so many followers and whatever you know they're prestigious sources it, it, it was to do with the the uh, freq uh the frequency of the information so the distribution of it in the population if, if it's more distributed people are more likely to believe it it's a conformity effect and then also the content of the information does it fit with what you already believe does it seem useful you know is it emotionally um uh, mm. uh triggering or, or whatever and so i think when it comes to uh, you know the the problem of, of of misinformation and disinformation. We we need to go back to some of these you know this these broad theories and, and try and target the problem uh, you know in, in a theoretical way. So if there's if there's problematic prestigious accounts that that needs to be addressed in some way. If there's um, and the illusion of frequency um, made you know by bots or or whatever, then that you know that can be addressed. And and content you know the. AI systems are now pretty good at, at, at analyzing a text and telling you whether it's, you know, angry or emotive or, or whatever, and, and perhaps content that's particularly insightful, you know, in tone and, and whatnot might be, I don't know what you do, you know, is it, is it automatically edited or is it flagged as problematic or... But uh, again, that's, it's just an arms race, right, because that, that, that comes back to the trust question in the first place. So is that a trusted source? So is that the AI that's telling me that this is misinformation? You know, is that trusted in itself? Um, and the whole thing just you know, would, would yep. just continue and, and, to evolve. Yeah. And and therein lies the threat, I think, of, of you know, one of the threats of AI is is that um that that cascade of um uh yeah, of doubt, I guess, mm -hmm. you know, it, it is. And um I know that speaking of science fiction, Neil Stevenson's got a, a great concept in his book, um uh Fall of Dodge in Hell. Yeah, where he, where yeah, he, talk, he talks it. of he talks of the flume, you know, and and Social media just descends into such a cesspool of of uh, bots and misinformation and whatnot that um you're, you're a bold person who is willing to even step into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and everyone has their personal editor, yeah, um, who does that that job for you. Um, 
you know, it's probably what I'm doing with Mimi, I, actually. I was about to say, I, I think you're my, you're my personal editor. <laughs> editor, yeah. <laughs> I do, yes, and I, I do scroll through Twitter five hours a day, so you don't have to, yeah. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, and, and, I mean, one of the comments that you put on a post that's really stuck with me over time is how, you know, the, the, the logical outcome of this is going to be, you know, text generating bots, uh, you know, in a, in a Darwinian battle against each other to capture the attention of, of eyeballs and capture the attention of advertising algorithms. Um, and so, you know, the whole of the internet, the whole of the metaverse is going to become this sort of wall of stochastic white noise, um, you know, AI generated content uh, that, that's just continually trying to sort of clickbait us all in. And that, you know, there's this concept of dark forests, you know, the dark forest on the internet of where, you know, you, you, you withdraw from you know being out there publicly and then you create private networks and and i think we were talking about sort of like quantum entangled uh, communications channels you know from brain to brain and maybe that's that's what comes out of this is you actually need uh you know completely private networks to exist alongside these sort of public um fora which are just going to become just loud yeah i i look i i think that's a serious risk I, you know the the, the internet and, and social media and digital communication, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a block of information and, and you know, uh, information, you know, over time tends to corrupt unless there's very active processes, you know, checking and editing, like, you know, like maybe with, well, I was about to say like maybe with DNA, but even, even DNA, you know, yeah. over evolutionary time becomes very corrupted with, with yeah. virus DNA and ALU repeats and so forth. And, you know, I, I fear that at some point we may just have to cast the, the current system aside and, and you know and, and look for some alternative um yeah which which i mean you look at all the web3 um you know work that's that's going on right now you know there's something in there it's going to take a few uh a few more iterations to really you know uh, get the value from that i mean just today um i've been you know an alpha customer of a service called skiff which is uh you know completely end-to-end -end encrypted uh documents, collaborative documents, and so like Google Docs, but, uh, you know, but, but without a large, you know, Web2 company that, that can get in and look at look at the content. And they just launched an email service today, which has got the same protections. Um, and then all of my uh, storage is now on IPFS as well. So it's sort of resilient across um, a sort of decentralized network. So, you know, the, the, this, this technology stack, um, you know, while we're seeing these sort of crypto booms and busts, uh, uh, you know, cycles, capturing the news, the technology stack of making, um, you know, far more decentralized and uh, I guess, you know, the ability to keep you know, your ideas private um, and, and maintain sort of private communications channels is certainly evolving beyond that. Um, and that, that uh, where I'm going with that, I mean, that's just basically a necessary, um, you know, uh, part of the architecture is to have, you know, direct peer-to-peer -peer communications without a, anyone listening in right yeah look i i this is possibly one area where I, i'm maybe not as optimistic as, as some of the web3 proponents um i look I, I think there needs to be a new solution you know obviously i don't think we can keep depending on on the way we've always done things as as you know the the flume <laughs> emerges but um but i think there's also there's problems with some of these distributed uh systems as well which which maybe we can iron out as you say maybe it just takes a bit more time but i think we've already seen issues like um 
you know, various developmental entrenchments where decisions were made early on that, that perhaps were regretted later, but because of the, um, you know, either blockchain based or, or, you know, whatever nature of the system, it's very difficult to, to change. And then, and then things have been changed. And then there's been outrage because the whole point was it was supposed to be distributed, but, um, you know, yeah. centralized. But, but, but again, I, you know, I just see those, as, those are um, bugs, bug mm. discussions. Yeah. So, um, and, and you're definitely seeing a, a pullback from code as law. Uh, you know, and so if it's in the code, then it's then it's law. And you're seeing this movement much more, you know, back to more conventional human governance mechanisms, right? Mm -hmm. Where the algorithm, um, you know, isn't always right. And you know, I, I, in, in some ways, I think cryptocurrencies are going. You know, there will always be a base layer where if you really want to take the risk of holding your keys in your head and making, you know, your personal opsec around all that, mm -hmm. yes, you could transact a Bitcoin to, you know, someone, I don't know, doing something nefarious over there. And, you know, if you, with all that OPSEC, no one would know who'd move the money around. But most people are going to want to walk, you know, act in a mm. uh, trusted you know, layer where there's equivalent of like banking regulation, I'm guessing. And they, you know, the, the, there's a social insurance that you're not going to be sort of wiped out because someone lost, someone found your keys. Mm. Um, I, I, you've also made me think of one other uh, risk issue, which, which probably I, I could have added earlier. Um, you know, if, if uh, island, an island refuge like New Zealand, you know, is cut off, um, you know, we, we, we depend for a lot of critical um, data um, on cloud uh, technology, obviously, um, which, you know, which as I was having a discussion yesterday is, is basically almost entirely dependent on two companies, both from the same country uh, here in New Zealand, and, and the data is still almost universally uh, stored offshore. So, yep. you know, in, in, a, in a nuclear war or EMP or super volcanic eruption type kind of situation, a lot of this could be, could be destroyed. And, um, and uh, you know, like um, banks and, and so forth uh, could, could cease to, to function. Yeah, yeah um, someone, and, loses, you know, someone loses the, the main ledger, you, right? Yeah, <laughs> you, you can't get paid, you can't pay for anything. And, and you know, they, these are, you know, obviously pretty catastrophic situations. Yeah. Um, and, and perhaps, you know, the, sort of, uh, I do a fair amount of a sort of business continuity planning, um, you know, as part of sort of overall strategic planning. And yeah, part of that is, is, is sort of like a, a nervous system is that, um, or, or, you know, a body when you, when you hypothermic is that you sort of withdraws blood to the core areas, right? And so, um, you know, a lot of business continuity strategies can be looked at like that as well as that, you know, you, you need to withdraw to the core. It's mm -hmm. very much your island refuge yeah. uh, concept too but no the, the the dependence you know in some ways you know we've got a food surplus so it's gonna be great you know we um you know nuclear winter comes and there's there's probably going to be enough food for most of us plenty here. of milk powder for us to eat plenty of milk powder yeah. <laughs> just don't go swimming in the rivers right <laughs> um but the you know the flip side of that is that we have no indigenous hardware you know manufacturing, uh, te uh, digital technology manufacturing capability here. Um, and so everything, you know, and the whole world's basically dependent on Taiwan right now, um, which is, you know, in Taiwan's, uh, you know, interests in many ways and, and not in others. Um, you know, there's a lot of manufacturing in China. And like you say, a lot of our, you know, cloud infrastructure and software, um, you know, goes through the, you know, yep. the, the West Coast of the US technology um, uh, giants. There was there was a, a very interesting paper out last year about um, volcanic pinch points, um, and and it, it drew attention to the fact that there's sort of these seven regions of the world where there is potential for 
even medium-sized, let alone supervolcanic eruption, and, and they coincide with areas of um, dense and critical ports, airports, undersea cables, and so forth, and you know, areas like Taiwan and, and the Luzon Strait and the Malay Peninsula and, and places like this. Um, and, and you know, New Zealand depends on, I think it's four uh, undersea cables at the moment, um, you know, yeah. the size of a finger. Um, yeah. and, and so, look, I, I guess one of my challenges to, to, um, to I guess, particularly decision makers, politicians who, who think that, um, you know, it's, it's the next few years that are the most important or, you know, or, or, or $10 tax cuts is what everyone wants and, and, and this sort of thing, is to think, well, you know, New Zealand and Australia and Iceland and some of these other places that, that I've mentioned are in quite privileged positions as, as the regions potentially most likely to, to be able to thrive through the very worst catastrophes. And maybe that puts some sort of obligation or responsibility upon those of us who, who live in these areas to try and maximise that potential so that if the very worst does happen, uh, then you know, we do have our cloud data service here. We do have you know, agricultural self-sufficiency. Mm. We do have um, an electric or hydrogen vehicle fleet that doesn't depend on refined fuel imports. And, and, you know, and for not just future New Zealanders, but you know, potentially the future of humanity generally, that, that could be on a global scale, one of the most cost-effective approaches to, to preserving humanity is, is to really bolster the resilience of a small island. Wow. Um, well, I think that's probably a really good place to, to um, end the conversation, Matt. Um, thanks for that. Lots of food for thought. Um, what are you working on right now? So right now, uh, we've, just, we've just finished a draft of a paper about uh, nuclear winter or, or abrupt sunlight reduction, reduction scenarios. So that's being peer reviewed by a few colleagues around the world. And then um, the next thing that I'm writing is, uh, is somewhat of a, of a conceptual analysis of the, of the island's uh, refuge and bunkers concept, because I think there's a few uh, misconceptions floating around. You know, people talk about these islands as a lifeboat, as if, you know, it's where everyone should run when catastrophe strikes. But obviously, if it's a serious pandemic, you don't want people running here because they, yeah. bring, the, they bring the disease. So, yeah, un untangling a few of those thoughts is, is the next uh, next step for me. Fantastic. And I know that you publish all your work online. Um, so where can people uh, just give us a link to uh, Adapt's website? Yep. So uh, adaptresearchwriting.com. Uh, and there's a there's a blog on there and uh, and some ideas uh, uh, a link to a tab about island refuges um, and some of our ideas for future research. Fantastic. And on Twitter, you're at Matt underscore adapt. That's correct. Brilliant. Um, all right. Well, look, so Matt Boyd, that's been a pleasure, uh, you know, going all around a whole subject of uh, catastrophic risk and uh, and, you know, existential challenges for for humanity. Um, I think we need to go and, and digest a lot of your ideas there. Uh, thanks very much for joining me today on the Mimia podcast. Thanks, Ben, for, for the chat. It's been great.